episode eight already. We have, through a, a bit of a unique method, a new interviewee today. It was from a post that I made on a great Australian paper trading forum called Straw Man that Tom came across me. I think, Tom, it was from a link to a Google Sheet investing tool that I've made that you, you contacted me. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good that uh, Straw Man can be yeah, a tool that uh, brings people together. It's obviously useful platform to, to track the, I guess, the best of the best retail investors across Australia. And I think, yeah, there's a lot to be learned from, from one another from, uh, from using that site. So yeah, it's great to be on your podcast. So Tom, can you tell us a bit about your background in investing? And as I understand it, you're in Oxford at the moment. So we'd like to hear a bit about what it takes to get into Oxford and, and what the students and professors are like there. And did it live up to your expectations? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll wind it back a little bit, just talk about my background leading into investing. And I guess investing has been concurrent along that journey. Um, so I, I would consider myself a bit of um, say a modern day polymath in, in the sense that, uh, you know, a polymath is someone who loves learning and becomes competent in a variety of domains and sort of integrates them into a useful skill set. Uh, and so, like, in other words, an all-rounder. And I, I think I knew this from quite a young age because you know, at school, all of my grades were virtually identical across all disciplines, you know, whether it be English, maths, commerce, history, chemistry, geography. And so at the end of this, those schooling years, um, I decided to study a program called chemical engineering, which is a very broad discipline, often referred to as the universal engineer. Um, and I went into the University of New South Wales with a scholarship program uh, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity because basically it's an industry linked scholarship so I had guaranteed internships um, but also that program has quite a phenomenal alumni list you know both uh, Scott Farquhar and Mike Cannon Brooks who are of course the the founders of Atlassian um, they are uh, which is you know one of Australia's greatest ever tech success stories um, and they're both in the top five richest people on the continent. Um, so they were both alumni of the program, recent alumni as well. And, you know, those were the sorts of role models and leaders we had as guest speakers, I think, which, you know, for a young person at the time, that's, that's very inspiring. At that time, you know, it was my aim to use those skills to tackle some of the world's biggest challenges, you know, whether that be renewable energy, water, waste, food security, um, chemical engineers work across all of those domains. And I guess... Uh, at that time, that's probably when I started investing as well, you know, and I think with investing, as you know, it's, you're covering so many different industries, so many different stocks, so many different sectors that I think that diversity of, of thought is, is really valuable. Um, you know, ultimately, I didn't move down that path. Um, I had the opportunity during my degree to represent Australia um, as a youth representative at the World Bank uh, and the IMF annual meetings. And that was in 2016. Uh, there was a really cool opportunity, you know, we, we got to meet Malcolm Turnbull and, and the president of the World Bank, Jim Yong Kim, uh, and but that sort of led me to an interest in business and management consulting. And so, you know, at the end of my degree, I had this difficult choice to make, which was, you know, do I pursue engineering or do I go into the business world? Um, and I ended up accepting a role with the global management consulting firm. And, you know, again, that's a really broad field. And, and for, for those listeners who aren't aware, management consultants, they effectively work across all industries. We're advising CEOs and the C-suite on business strategy. 
you know, and, and perfectly, I think it's the perfect first job out of university in a way, because, you know, as you've um, discussed on your show, everything in life compounds, you know, it's not just money and, you know, you should aim to begin that compounding and accelerate it as, as fast as you can um, from a very early age. And I think for management consulting, it does it in, in three ways really uh, spectacularly, which is experiences, skills, uh, and also networks. Um, so following that, you know, I did three years in the management consulting world. Um, and that's now, and you know, simultaneously during that period, I was um, I had a huge passion for investing and I really felt like that was my calling, even at that stage. Um, obviously, management consulting was really relevant to investing in that I'm learning about what makes a business successful, why some businesses have a stronger competitive moat than others. Um, and I guess following those three years, you know, I thought it's, it's, it's time for the next step um, in my career. And that's now led me to Oxford. So I'm studying um, a master's here, master's of business administration uh, under Said Foundation Scholarship. And yeah, I guess so to tie it back in, back to the concept of the polymath, I guess, in essence, this sort of, they bring the best of what humanity's discovered across different fields to help them be successful in their core endeavor. Um, and for me today, that core endeavor is definitely investing. Um, and I think without a doubt, that sort of background helps me as an investor. Um, and yeah, in terms of the question around Oxford itself and, and what does it take to get in, you know, it's, it's obviously, um, it, it is challenging to get in and I'm, I'm sure there was a bit of luck on my part to, to get through. Um, it's a multi-stage process. And so essentially for the MBA, you need to undertake um, a three hour quantitative reasoning test or the GMAT uh, and your score is then compared against other test takers across the world and, and Oxford being Oxford, they're very selective. Um, so they're, they're looking for students who are in the top 10% of those test takers. Uh, and then also students who are in the top 10% of their undergraduate degree. Yeah, but, but beyond academic performance, they're looking for um, evidence of leadership potential. And so the referee process and the application essays and also the interview process, they're evaluated from that lens. You know, and um, you know, it's a thrill to be here in Oxford. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So let's turn our attention a little bit more towards trading and investing then. Uh, you've given us a good background. Can you tell us a little bit about trading simulation you've been working on at the moment? So I think you know, one of the, the, the upsides, of course, of, of being in a place like Oxford is the, their reputation. And so that enables the university to bring in some phenomenal guest speakers and, and also to run some really interesting um, sessions for us. So, so as an example, um, we've, we've got an asset management class actually next week and the guest speaker is Anthony Bolton. And uh, Anthony Bolton, for those who don't know, is, is one of the UK's best known investment fund managers. Um, he's also probably one of the UK's most successful investors. Um, he managed the uh, Fidelity Special Situations Fund, I think, from around about 1980 to say 2008 or so. Um, and I believe, you know, over that period of time, the fund achieved amazing growth of, you know, about 20% compounded per annum. Um, so that's, that's one sort of aspect that, we, so I guess we get exposure to. Another is these sort of extracurricular activities. So some of the class signed up for this uh, trading simulation, which happened today, um, ran across um, the entire day across Saturday. 
and it will run tomorrow as well. And you know, basically it's run by this group called Amplify and it's exactly the same training simulations that are delivered to the, the world's largest financial firms actually as part of their training programs. Uh, and basically it involves rotating through roles in sales trading, um, market making, risk management um, and investing so that you can build your profile across those different roles. And, you know, for me personally, I'm, I'm not interested in a career within an investment bank, but I think it's, it's exciting to see the exposure and, and to, to understand how that plays out in reality. Um, because you know, as an investor, you're obviously dealing with the, the uh, sell side um, and you, that, that comes into play when you're looking at things like bid um, spreads and so on. And so to get a feel for what's on the other side of the fence in the investment bank, um, is useful, I think. So it's been good fun. And I think as an added, um, uh, I guess, excitement to the whole thing was that we were competing against Cambridge University, which of <laughs> course is the fierce rival of, uh, of Oxford. So that added, added a little bit of extra incentive. To it. It, it, it's the trading version of the rowing competition. Yes, exactly right. The, uh, the, the rowing varsity matches is, is a big thing. I'm really looking forward to, to watching that. That'll be next year. Uh, great. I have to ask, so did you actually put any trades on, even though it was simulated? Like, was it based on any real-world trading? No, it, it wasn't. So purely a simulation, we did have, obviously, you know, paper money working with and um, hypothetical events that were, were coming across that we had to deal with. So, um, you know, good and bad, I think. You know, we didn't have to lose anyone's money. <laughs> Just good. Uh, damn, I was hoping to get, to get a stock tip out of uh, someone someone doing things at Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to the tips. Got a few for you. <laughs> we'll... No worries. Okay, so it was great to see you came prepared with your own behavioral investing agenda for this interview. So let's now go through the four items that you came up with. First, let's talk about notions of market efficiency. Why doesn't it apply in the small cap space? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think it is a good place to start to, you know, talking about this because, you know, your podcast is about first principles approach and, and, and more importantly, it's about how psychology influences investors. So um, this is something that's important to me and how I approach uh, investing. And I think, you know, it's probably to start with a useful bit of context for listeners is what is the efficient market hypothesis? And, you know, it's really this theory in, in financial economics that, states that asset prices reflect all available information. Now, you know, a direct implication of that is that it's impossible to beat the market, you know, consistently, or at least on a risk-adjusted basis, because market prices should only react to new information. But, you know, there's a well-known joke which illustrates this, which sort of tell all the um, inapplicability of it, which tells of a finance professor and a student they're walking along and they come across a hundred dollar note on the ground you know, and the student stops to pick it up really excitedly. The professor says, you know, don't bother. If it was a real hundred dollar note, it wouldn't be there, you know, to, to sort of highlight that theory now. But in reality, we know that there are investors who can consistently beat the market. You know, in some particular spaces of the market, the efficient market hypothesis begins to break down. Um, now, I think the reason for this is firstly in the small, you know, the micro and the nano cap end of the market. Um, the, firstly, it's simply not scrutinized extensively in the way that blue chips are. 
Um, but secondly, in the small cap end of the, the markets, you know, particularly where retail investors often dominate the register, there's also these clear biases. And, and that can be due to you know, legal, cultural, informational, particularly behavioral and emotional factors. Uh, and this can create clear deviations of market securities from, from fair value. And it's these sort of deviations that I and, and TP Investments aim to take advantage of. It reminds me of J.P. O'Shaughnessy. He also wrote the book, What Works on Wall Street. And he consistently says on Twitter, behavioral factors are the final arbitrage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I definitely agree. I think it's, it's a fundamental aspect of my investing philosophy. Um, I think it's something that one needs to pay attention to, not just in their own behavior and how it influences how they're approaching their investment decisions, but also in terms of the collective herd and how they are acting in a given environment. Um, and I think it's really, really important to be watching that because that obviously dictates whether a stock is moving through you know, undervalued or overvalued territory. And we can, we can talk about that sort of pendulum of emotions as well if you, if you want to stray onto that topic. So that is actually the next topic, the pendulum of emotions, as you call it. From fear to greed, can you just describe to listeners what that is and how it plays out for um, investing? Yeah, absolutely, Ben. Um, so I think it was um, Howard Marks who first came up with the, the concept, or at least you know, coined the phrase, which is um, pendulum of emotions. Um, Howard Marks, you know, for those who don't know, was... Um, co-founder, co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital Management. But I really like this concept because you know, if you think of a pendulum you know, as it's swinging, the midpoint of the arc definitely best describes where the pendulum is sitting on average. You know, it's, but it actually spends very little of its time in that midpoint region. And of course, it's always swinging wildly you know, towards or away from the stream, extremes of that arc. And what I think is useful about this analogy is that when it is further away from the midpoint, it's sort of inevitable that it moves back towards the midpoint sooner or later. Uh, and, and with investing, this is a really great representation of how emotions influence the markets. Um, and as you, Ben, as you pointed out, the two endpoints of this pendulum are, of course, fear and greed. Now, there's an entire field of psychology out there that you know investigates why human beings are not purely rational uh, and are instead emotional. And it, in, in my opinion, at least, it comes back to this inbuilt flight or fight response. Uh, but at its core, the existence of the pendulum is fundamentally a result of the fact that as humans, we assess the world with emotionalism rather than with pure objectivity. And I think that you know, there's two key concepts to talk about here. For, and you've probably, you may have covered them before, the first is loss aversion theory. And the second is the theory of selective perception. Now, so on the former, fear is the probably the, the most powerful of all human emotions. You know, and if you think about the markets, when traders become afraid, they will sell a position regardless of the price. You know, fear leads to panic. Panic leads to poor decision-making. Fear is a survival response, right? So the theory of loss aversion states People who pref people prefer avoiding losses to acquiring the equivalent gain. You know, it's it's quite remarkable, really. Um, so, as an example, someone who loses ten thousand dollars 
will lose more satisfaction than another person will gain from a $10,000 windfall. But it's the same value, it's the same value that's gone up or down, right? Um, and then in terms of the second concept, which is what our irrational emotional behavior often takes the form of, is a selective perception. And so in other words, sometimes investors take note only of positive events and ignore the negative ones. Sometimes the opposite is true. Uh, and sometimes investors view events in a positive light. Sometimes they're viewed in a negative light, but rarely are those perceptions balanced and neutral. Um, you know, psychology rarely gives equal weight to those developments. So I think that's often what leads to greed and, and to hope. Hope's probably actually the most dangerous of, of human emotions when it comes to trading, um, because you know, greed and hope, that's what can prevent you from taking profits on a winning trade, you know, at the other end of the spectrum now. So every swing trader hopes that, you know, losing trade somehow becomes a winning trade, but, you know, stock markets are not a charity and that type of thinking is dangerous because the group, and, and by that, I mean the stock market, that could care less about what you hope for or what is in your best interest. And, you know, rest assured when your thinking slips into hope mode, the markets will punish you. It's interesting you mentioned hope because uh, the investing course that Ben and I did, which uh, this tool that you're interested in is based on, has a bunch of biases that we must go through before committing to purchasing a business. And one of those is hope. When you were talking about what drives greed, selective perception, to me, that's another way to describe confirmation bias. So you've got, you've got a belief that you are only noticing things that confirm that belief. What I might add as well, Will, is that, you know, there's, there's potentially differences here as well in the way that retail uh, investors deal with their emotions versus institutional investors. You know, and I, personally, I wouldn't be so bold to assume that institutional investors themselves are immune to those biases. But I think in saying that, retail investors who are often new to the market, they're definitely, at, without a doubt, at greater risk of these emotional overrides. So I yeah. think it's fair to say that emotional swings and, and thus fluctuations in fair value are more significant in the small cap space. And so that's another reason why I personally like to focus on that small micro and nano cap spectrum of the ASX. I see. And that's because you have more retail traders who are the shareholders of those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so... I think the stocks are more volatile for those reasons. Now, re yeah, retail investors are, are probably more prone to those sort of biases as a general okay. rule. So uh, to, to speak technically, if you like, if we can have technical language to do with behavioral investing, which I think we should, you're saying that the shareholder rosters, if you like, of those businesses of that corner of the market are more prone to emotional overrides. So essentially the, the business opportunity, if you like, or the niche that you've identified your investing firm is and i don't mean to say anything bad by by, by expressing thing, things this way but perhaps uh there's a vulnerability that you've identified here and it has a, an emotional flavor if i can put it uh, perhaps poetically yeah i mean that, that's an interesting way of describing it and i mean ultimately as an investor you're looking for those discrepancies of of uh, current share price relative to intrinsic value 
And I think, yeah. you know, the more movement, the more volatility you've got in the stock, the more opportunity you have to, to yeah. capitalize on it. Um, and so and I think the other reason, other than the fact that retail investors might be more prone to those emotional overrides is of course, in those small caps, where the register is comprised mostly of retail investors, you, you are also in a situation where those um, emotional factors are accentuated because of the liquidity of, of the stock or the, the lack of liquidity, I should say. Whereas of course, in a, in a blue chip stock with a, a big register comprised of many institutional investors, even if a proportion of the register were to be set by those emotional overrides, that would not be as catastrophic. It would not matter because you would still have someone um, acting rationally. And of course, the market price is dictated by the last available trade, right? So someone can take advantage of that instantly and move it back to fair value. Okay, so the, the, the arbitrage opportunity may last longer perhaps in the small cap space. Is that a, a way to express things? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good, um, it's a really good way of expressing it. Using CXZ as an example of how emotions can cloud investors' judgments, can you talk a little bit about that and how that creates extreme volatility? Yeah, absolutely, Ben. I mean, I think this is a good, it's probably actually a perfect example here to demonstrate these sort of emotional biases. Um, so for context, I'm not sure if you're aware or, or listeners would be, but Connection, which, as you said, has the ASX ticker code CXZ. Uh, it's a company that focuses on the development and um, commercialization of smart car technology for the, um, for the automotive industry. So it's effectively, it's an internet of things technology company. Uh, and they have a major contract with General Motors. Uh, and the market capitalization of this stock is exceptionally low, very, very low. Now, if I wind the clock back a little, now, on the 21st of August of this year, um, the company released its full year, so FY20 results. Um, and you know, by all objective accounts, it was an excellent set of results. They reported full year revenue of um, 8.2 million, was up more than 100% year on year, net profit of after tax of 3.2 million. And that was up significantly year on year as well. Uh, and all of that was for a company with a market cap of under 20 million AUD. So yeah, as you could expect, on that day, the share price rocketed uh, from 1.8 cents to an intraday high of about 3.8 cents. So at the time, it was up about 100% or more. Mm. Um, now, that's not sort of surprising in that it was extremely cheap, but it, but it is surprising in the sense that the full year results were simply a combination of the previous four quarters. So everyone who'd done their due diligence knew what the full year results would be, right? You simply had to combine the four previous quarters. Um, so without a doubt, the company was undervalued dramatically, but there was definitely some euphoria. Um, there was definitely some excitement um, at play. And you know, this helps to explain how the rise in share price, of course, was so rapid, um, how it suddenly equilibrated with fair value so quickly. And I think that rise you know, goes to demonstrate to some extent you know, the one end of the pendulum, which is the, the greed aspect, right? And the, this FOMO effect. So that, that's the one side of the pendulum. But I, I think the reason why this example is useful is it does show the other side of the story as well, right? So pendulum swung up there to greed. The share price has just gone up over 100%. Um, the price is above three cents right now. The volume is actually off the charts. So there's 863 million shares on issue with CXZ. 
Uh, it suddenly comes to everyone's attention that there's this tech company, market cap of 30 million, it's just pulled in 8 million of revenue, increased its profit. It's a screaming buy. It's on a P of 10 at this stage, right? And, you know, a P of 10 is objectively low for a tech company that's just grown its revenue in that fashion. But at this stage, the price starts stagnating, you know, and it's up at around three cents, enormous buy side volume. So what does that mean, right? So there's obviously a big seller at play. So now unbeknown to the market, at this stage, Lucerne Investment Partners decided to liquidate its entire holding. And a director of the fund, Arian, uh, who is the acting CEO of the company, uh, was associated with Lucerne. So of course, in the space of, you know, simply days, panic sets in uh, and retail investors are suddenly convinced the acting CEO has sold an enormous um, sized holding into these results. And of course, what did we talk about before? Loss aversion theory. Of course, it comes into play. The share price starts tanking and it falls not just to where it started, which was 1.8 cents, as I mentioned, but it goes even lower. So it hits 1.4 cents on the 2nd of October. Uh, of course, I was buying at this stage for a market cap close to about 10 million. Now, of course, the fundamentals for the company are otherwise the same, the underlying fundamentals. Now, the, the reason I tell that story is for those who did their due diligence and who have spoken with Lucerne, and who have spoken with Arian and the act, who's the acting CEO, they will note that the there was no uh, input from Aaron into the sell decision whatsoever. He still maintains a personal holding of 10 million shares through his performance rights. The first reason to explain the selling was that there was actually a fundamental refresh at the fund. So management and staff turnover meant that the previous positions across the board um, were across, across all their positions were liquidated. Secondly, Lucerne had been invested for about six years. They had a huge position sizing. They were on about a 300% profit. So they had an obligation to return those profits to shareholders. And thirdly, just for a bit of extra evidence, the fund is actually a Cayman vehicle. So there was a considerable tax issue for the fund if they had continued to hold, you know, with that ownership over CXA, which was up above 10%. You know, in the space of weeks, the share price went from 1.8 to 3.8 and then back down to 1.4, but nothing fundamentally changed in terms of the company. And of course, the well-informed investor knew that. So, I mean, bring it back to, to the story. I mean, if, if Lucerne hadn't sold out, I personally believe that the share price of connection would be well above four cents at this stage. And I think it will take a little longer now for it to reach that level. Uh, and I still believe we will get there. But the story goes to show that, you know, perception is king uh, and that collective emotion of the market can be an extremely powerful um, process in dictating the share price of the company. I'm just having a look at their um, price at the moment. Yeah, 1.7 cents. So they're stabilised a little now. They're, they're around about their starting point. So, first, you know, from my perspective, significantly undervalued still. Um, there's a lot of factors that investors need to take into consideration with this stock. Uh, one, of course, is that they do have customer concentration risk in that General Motors is their only customer at this stage. Um, after doing my due diligence, I'm very confident they will renew that contract with GM. Um, I'm also confident that they will be able to expand 
into additional OEMs in the future as well. So I think this, this is a growth opportunity. Um, and really, when you look at the multiples of the stock with you know, the PE ratio being about five times, um, the revenue multiple being less than two times, it, it's very cheap. Less than two. Less than two. This stage, a catalyst, I think, to adjust those multiples and see it re-rate in the eyes of investors. Uh, and we probably get to catalysts later in, our, in, the, in the talk. And, and you know, it, it's kind of funny because I actually did an analysis of connection on the 6th of February, 2020. I mean, I'll just read my understanding statement. So Software and Services Corporation Connection Technologies has a monopoly selling vehicle tracking software and dashboards to US GM dealerships to maintain their courtesy vehicle fleets as well as a similar system for commercial fleets for other businesses. They have recently become profitable. Does that accord with your understanding, Tom? Yeah, exactly. That's a good summary, Will. Um, that, that's exactly the state they're in. And yeah, I think there's, there is an exciting path ahead of them. I think investors are a little clouded right now. There's definitely a few risks on the horizon. And I think once those risks are addressed uh, and that uh, risk peels back in the eyes of investors, I think that's where we can see the re-rate happen in the share price. Sure, yeah. And in terms of return on capital employed, in terms of operating income, I've got figures here of between with cash at the beginning of the period, negative 188% to without cash at the end of the period, 600, positive 610%. So on the whole, the return on capital employed is stunning uh, in terms of operating income. In terms of free cash flow, the return on capital employed ranges from negative 100% to positive 541% for the no cash at the beginning of the period option because this, our framework sort of teaches us to consider things as a range of outcomes for return on capital employed. There's no definitive number. And the growth in terms of operating income per fully diluted share is on average 9.5%. And in terms of free cash flow per fully diluted share, the growth is 47%. So yeah, I think, yeah, you're right to bring up this company. It's got some fantastic numbers. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good analysis, Will. Um, and I agree. I mean, they run a really lean operation. It's a current mindset. The balance sheet, it looks great. Um, the company was in strife historically. You know, around about two years ago, they really turned it around, um, turned the ship around, cleaned up the balance sheet, injected new finance. And from there, it's gone from strength to strength. So I think... From here, it's in a great position. It really just needs um, the company to, to put their growth mindset on, to sign another customer, a key client, to renew the current contract with General Motors. Uh, and there's indications that that will happen. And I think from there, it's, it's a multi-bagger in my view. You know, it's definitely a stock which is obviously higher risk. It's definitely a more speculative stock. So I would you know, advise, um, well, nothing here is, is, is advice. Um, should mention that as a disclaimer, all the usual disclaimers apply, of course, but you know, as a stock pick, personally, it's, it's something that I have a smaller uh, percentage holding allocated to, but among those more speculative stocks, it's definitely one of the more promising ones. For me. Great, all right, well, great to have a pick and a case for it presented on, on the show. So the next item is how do you remove emotional biases in your decision-making? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question because, you know, emotion is one of your greatest enemies as an investor. So I think we discussed that, of course, earlier. Um, I think firstly, it comes to a question of confidence, right? Because 
Confidence itself is a key emotion. And confidence, you know, like other emotions, also swings radically. So for some people, those that swing in confidence may result from disillusionment. So, you know, it's, it's particularly painful where for some investors, if they realise they know far less than they thought they knew about a particular stock or how the world works or in a particular industry. Um, but it's important to remain stable and moderate with your confidence level. So I think being aware of this is a first step. Uh, but to keep it at a certain level yeah, and to have true belief uh, and confidence in your investment thesis, I think that can really only be obtained by putting in the hard yards, you know, to work tirelessly, reach the 99th percentile of investors in a particular stock. Uh, and that enables you to remain steadfast in your conviction. You know, when everyone about you is losing faith, losing their heads. Uh, and you can use tools like Hot Copper to gauge sentiment of other investors around you, which of course is useful. Um, I mean, secondly, I would say, in order to control your own emotions, I personally think it's important to have control over your own circumstances. And so by that, I mean, structuring your own environment so as to limit the impact of that on your emotional swings. So to have, for example, to have some consistency and stability in your personal environment, what you want to do is you want to avoid pressure for short-term performance at all cost. Um, you never want to put money into the markets that you may need at an immediate point in time in the future. So I personally always have a significant cash buffer in my net worth. Uh, and at the moment, my, you know, my cash buffer is massive. It's about 50% of my net worth, but that is a reflection of how I feel about broader market volatility. Uh, and then lastly, I would recommend having a system in place for, for both buying and selling. Um, so, the, you know, the exact rules of my own buying and selling system have been refined over time. But the general philosophy is that I'm always buying gradually. I'm allowing myself space to buy more if the price falls further. And if the investment thesis is still intact and on the upside, I'm always selling gradually. Uh, and as a company approaches, moves through and then exceeds the fair, my fair value range estimate, I will be offloading my position according to that system. You know, and having that system takes emotion out of the equation. You know, it removes greed from your mindset and that is often uh, what can lead to a failure of investors to actually take their paper profit. And I think that's really important. And I've got plenty of examples from my early years of investing where I was on extraordinary profits, um, triple digit um, percentage increases. But I was, I, I openly admit I was a little greedy. I let those opportunities pass. I missed my chance. Mean reversion theory took that back down to reality. And I missed, I missed those opportunities. But my current approach is to have that system in place. And since I've been implementing that system, my returns have improved dramatically. Is your approach purely center on your own efforts and your own um, due diligence and your ability to control your own emotions? Or do you also leverage either a mentor or other people in the investing, like not just people on hot copper, but um, business partners effectively to test your ideas against both the, either on the buy side or the sell side? Yeah, that's a great question. I do do both of those things. So I think, you know, speaking, having a group of people around you, having those mentors to bounce ideas off and, and fellow investors 
that is critical to me. That's something I, I do frequently, you know, I really enjoy actually the environment of, of discussing stocks with, with other investors. And then of course, Hot Copper as well is, is definitely a useful platform, right? So um, I'm definitely using that to gauge where my investment fair value range sits relative to other people's. And so for those who don't know, you know Hot Copper, it's Australia's largest free uh, and independent stock market trading forum uh, for ASICs investors, and really just to discuss share prices, stock market, any other topics. So I can talk about either of those two topics, Ben. Would you like me to delve, delve into any one of those two in particular? Hot Copper well, well, it's interesting you mentioned Hot Copper, because uh, you're one of the high-performing contributors to Hot Copper. Can you just give us a little bit of a description on how you achieve that and how people can find you there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I've been posting on Hot Copper since about 2016 uh, onward under the name of um, t.e.p. I mean, I personally find it uh, a useful way of documenting my own thoughts and, and my own research. So for context, for those who don't know, when you make a post on this platform, other investors can either hit the like button or they can hit the great analysis button uh, if they think your post is, is helpful. Uh, and investors can only award up to three great analysis likes per day. So, so in total, there's about 250,000 members on Hot Copper. A fairly sizable proportion of those are you know, actually regularly posting thoughts and commentary on stocks. Uh, so it's a huge community. Uh, it actually ranks in the top 100 of Australia's most visited websites. And yeah, when you mentioned the, I guess, the leaderboard of sorts for Hot Copper, so they used to have a, a public leaderboard of contributors, uh, and it was based on several metrics, including number of followers, number of likes, number of great analysis likes. But that uh, leaderboard then has actually been replaced with what is now known as the Red Heart algorithm. And essentially, the top 40 investors on the platform, as judged by the algorithm at any one point in time, are awarded a red heart. And that pops up on your avatar. Uh, and there's a number of extremely successful private retail investors who have held a red heart across the past few years. So earlier this year, I held a red heart. Um, so technically, that put me in the top 0.016% of Australia's retail investors on the platform. Uh, and, and during that time period, there was a huge jump for sure in the amount of attention that my profile received. Um, I no longer have that red heart, so I've lost it. It's a real-time um, evaluation. But I think to, to your question, I think the best method to get a red heart is simply to post really valuable and objective analysis. So the community there is pretty savvy, just like with Strawman. They will quickly catch on if a poster is simply, you know, a short-term day trader, or if that person is a medium to long-term investor like myself, who is actually posting credible analysis and insights to justify their buy and sell decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it's a useful platform. Well, uh, how many posts were you making sort of a week, or how did to get to your red heart? Obviously, there's the quality aspect, but then also there's the quantity. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Ben, because uh, I believe that's why I've lost the red heart. I've definitely slowed down in the volume of posts. When I got that red heart, I was posting, I'm going to say at least five times a day, five distinct posts, either on <sighs> similar stocks or the same stock or multiple stocks every single day. Um, and each of those posts was not a simple few sentences. 
it was a few paragraphs of, of thought or analysis. So obviously, as you can tell, you know, investing is a huge passion of mine. That's, that's why I'm pursuing it full time. Um, that becomes a full time job almost. It, it does. And I've slowed down that effort on the platform. Uh, and particularly, you know, there can be bickering and so on on the platform, which is why straw man in some respects is a, is a more objective and, and um, uh, a more useful platform. They both have uses, in my opinion. But of course, in straw man, you're not debating. You're just, you're allowing your personal track record to speak for itself. Um, and you can put up your, your investment thesis, as you know. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I'm actually on Hot Copper now and I'm trying to find how I get the list of Red Heart users. Is there a way to, to find that? It's a good question, Will. So you can't actually see the list all in the one place. Uh, so you do need to sort of flick around through a few different stocks and eventually you'll get to the point where you, you've come across one or two. If you go to a stock called Spectrum, the code is SP3. This is another stock that I actually have a, a position in at the moment. Um, there is a red heart poster on the Spectrum Hot Copper, Madam Answer, very, uh, very wise individual. I obviously don't know them outside of, of reading their analysis. They've posted some good co uh, comments on the Spectrum website. So you'll see what I mean there. When you look at their profile, you'll see that red heart next to their name, but there's no definitive list. Good to know at least how I can find the, the top performers on the platform. Given that we have a, a psych focus and Ben and I have uh, psych degrees, I wanted to just make a comment about something that I was researching a bit as we were going along in the interview. You mentioned how we feel losses more distinctly than gains of the same sort of numerical magnitude. And I saw that the, the difference is about 2.3 times. This reminded me of something from actually my master's research where actually people perceive the height of a cliff or a slope to be greater when they're making the judgment from the top of the cliff than the bottom of the cliff. And this is from uh, the Journal of Experimental Psychology in Human Perception and Performance. There was an article in 2009 by, get this, Stefanucci and Prophet. I love the fact that one of the author's surname is Prophet. Anyway, just reading from the abstract, uh, it says, across all of the measures, a large consistent bias was found. Vertical distances were greatly overestimated, especially from the top. Secondary findings suggest that the overestimation of distance and size that occurs when looking down from a high place correlates with reports of trait and state level fear of heights. I mean, it's, it's pretty basic and straightforward. Just love how these perception and based effects with a clear biological sort of preservation basis, how you find them and how they turn up and, and affect people's uh, participation, even in things like a stock market. Absolutely, Will. I mean, uh, and that's why your backgrounds are so useful with regards to investing. It's a really actually particular niche there that you're looking at, which is obviously the behavioral aspects of investing. And you're absolutely right. It, it is biological and there are actually studies which investigate loss aversion theory with regards to, to monkeys. And they've shown that it, it, it exists there as well. So it's definitely um, biological and it's, it's a, it stems back to that flight or fight response, you know, and it's um, something that uh, it's hardwired in us, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm tempted actually to, to rename 
our podcast and the Twitter account as the biological investor. Our sort of tagline on Twitter, uh, investing for primates, kind of points at that. You know, uh, you know, Ben's even accused me of being an anarchist for saying this. But, you know, we are. We're basically just, I think actually Naval Ravikant, there was a quote uh, of, of, about him or from him on, on Twitter recently saying, you know, we shouldn't take ourselves seriously. After all, we're just monkeys with plans. Yeah, exactly right. I like that idea, Will. Yeah, that's, that's the point of this podcast and, um, and what you're saying here, how we begin to gain an advantage for ourselves and at the risk of sounding like we're trying to exploit the vulnerable over others. Can you give us a, a bit of a basic overview of your investing approach, uh, Tom, particularly around the idea of finding value catalysts? Yeah, absolutely, Will. So, I mean, anyone who is interested can read a, a bit more about this on my um, website. But essentially, yeah, I'm a value investor at heart. Uh, I'm looking for companies that are at a extreme discount to their intrinsic value. Uh, but my style has a few key differences compared to the, the stereotypical value investor, shall we say. Um, the first is that, as I mentioned earlier, I almost exclusively focus on that small cap arena uh, for the reasons we discussed earlier. Secondly, I really like to focus on stocks that I think are being unfairly influenced by emotion and, and trying to capitalize on that. Um, and thirdly, I'm looking for catalysts. So that's where that, um, that phrase of the value catalyst uh, investor um, comes into play. Um, so basically, you know, in any market environment, finding value is only the first part of the process. And, and most listeners are uh, I'm sure aware of that. You know, the most frustrating, the most challenging part of value investing is of course having that patience and that discipline to wait for the value to be realized. And however long that takes, and sometimes that can take months or even years. But, but as an active investor, I'm looking for those stocks with a major impending catalyst. You know, so those sort of catalysts could include things such as new management, new deals, corporate spin-offs, major asset sales, shift in demand supply, regulatory changes, etc. So I'm not the first to talk about catalysts in investing, but I do like to think that I am pioneering this distinct approach to value catalyst investing in the small cap space. Okay, so just on that then, can you give us an example of some companies that fit that framework? Yeah, absolutely, Ben. So, I mean, a good example would be to, to discuss pure minerals with the ASX code PM1. They're in my portfolio currently. Basically, they are an Australian company. They're focused on the development of battery metals, uh, particularly cobalt and nickel. Um, they're aiming to do that through something called the Tech Project. That basically stands for the Townsville Energy Chemicals Hub. Uh, and basically, the Tech Hub will be a new refinery uh, in northern Queensland processing um, the top mate, I think it's roughly 600,000 tonnes minimum of laterite ore a year from New Caledonia, and that will produce 25,000 tonnes of nickel sulphate and 3,000 tonnes of cobalt sulphate per annum, plus other valuable byproducts such as hematite. So with this stock and, and the value catalyst approach, um, the context, I guess, is that I had uh, built a connection 
with the current uh, CEO from previous dealings or in previous stocks. He was actually in another stock that I was involved in. But anyway, after his appointment at Pure Minerals, that's when I obviously reached out to him and, and uh, wanted to get a feel for the journey that Pure Minerals was moving along. Basically, I got into this deep dive of what the upcoming milestones would be for the company. Uh, and, and basically, there's a whole host of upcoming milestones here, right, from, um, that are yet to play out still, even at this stage, from additional offtake agreements to the upcoming DFS, which stands for Definite Feasibility Study, you know, to potentially a likely announcement, which will relate to the increased scale of the facility. And they're hoping to, to dramatically step change the volume of all that they process. But basically, when I was doing my, taking my initial position, it was important to me not only to do the underlying valuation, the fundamental due diligence, but also to do the due diligence on understanding what the likely timeline of the company was to achieving its near-term goals. Uh, and so at that point in time, it was clear to me that the company was progressing well along its timeline. You know, I also had good faith in the CEO who is a really a class operator, uh, Dr. Stephen Grocock. Uh, and not too long after my entry at 1.5 cents, um, the company announced a MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with LG Chem. Uh, they're the largest EV battery maker in the world. Uh, that's obviously put a rocket under the share price, set it on a parabolic trajectory. Um, it's, it reached as high as 5 cents. It's now pulled back a little bit to around 3.5 cents. At this stage, I still think we have significant further upside in the share price. There are further catalysts to come. Um, but generally, in terms of using this as an example, this was a value catalyst because not only was it a value stock, it was well below fair value, but I could also see that there were a range of upcoming milestones that had a reasonable chance of playing out. It sounds like you need to have a vision. You need to have an imagination as an investor, as much as being capable of doing a discount cash flow analysis, for example. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the, the markets are forward looking, right, Will? So it's, it is critical to always be thinking ahead. What, what's that next step? You know, and people are quite short term focused with their investing generally. But I think for those who are longer term investors, those who are willing to to wait a little bit of time, let the story play out. It's important to know what are the, the milestones, what are the catalysts that you expect will play out and what's your best guess at their likelihood of playing out. And if you found a great company that's extremely undervalued, but you think there's a low likelihood of, of that value being realized, well, personally, I'm, I'm not gonna invest. I'm gonna move on because in the universe of companies out there on the ASX, there are many, many companies that are undervalued, but the ones that are really becoming multi-baggers are the ones that are undervalued and have major catalysts. Hmm. Uh, I mean, another example I could give you is, is Redbubble. And, and just purely talking to it from the, we could talk about it in depth as well, but purely from the, from the value catalyst perspective, you know, most people would be aware that Martin Hosking, who is the founder, uh, he was only in the role of CEO recently in a preliminary capacity. Uh, and it was aware to those who had done, dug around that they, they were searching for a new leader for some time. Now, just yesterday on Friday, the, the announcement was revealed to the market that they'd appointed a new CEO, who's the former CEO of Seek. That announcement sent the share price up 10%. And from here, it's likely the beginning of a, a new bullish 
trajectory moving forward because you know, we can talk about this in more depth if you'd like, but all the other boxes as well with this company being ticked, but that, that in particular was a potential catalyst to unlock a bit further value. Yeah, let's keep talking about them, but if I can attempt to throw a spanner in the works. Before the interview, I was reading The Star Principle by Richard Koch, if that's the right way you pronounce his surname. And I found out about that, as I described in a previous episode, actually through Straw Man, there's an account on there called Star. And he basically said that the way you pick winners or stars is you find a market niche that's growing at least a 10% a year, and you buy the leader in that niche. Does that factor into any of your decision making or did that make Redbubble, for example, attractive to you? Yeah, absolutely, Will. It, it is a really good framework to approach investing. I, I've definitely come across it. I use it frequently with all of my investments. The, the theory from it actually stems from the management consulting world. So there's a company called BCG, Boston Consulting Group. They came up with this two by two matrix, which talks to, to cows, stars, question marks, and dogs. And basically it's a way of characterizing a business through its life cycle. And the two factors that you want to look at, as you correctly pointed out, Will, are market share. And, and obviously you want to pick a business that is dominant in its particular space, but also the growth of that industry. And of course, the holy grail is to find a business in A, a fast growing industry, and B, a company which is dominant in that industry. Now, this theory has also been put to use, great use, by... Uh, by Richard Koch, as you mentioned, he suggests that's that there's a further, yes, uh, he suggests that network effects are a further addition. So that's a third layer that you can add to this uh, framework, Will. And as a little aside, actually, I've actually met Richard. He came to Sydney on one occasion. I had a chat with him. We discussed investing, and yeah, he's a great, great guy. Uh, he follows the sun around the world. He has. Uh, a fair few hundred million dollars worth of pounds to his name yeah. and net assets. And really his and, and he's a follow, he follows us on Twitter. That's what I, we, we can we can have we have a claim to fame too here. <laughs> that is impressive. I, I love that. That's great. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. O only because I mentioned character. his book. <laughs> that's excellent. I'm really impressed. <laughs> no, no, keep going. Sorry. Shameless. Yeah, but look, it, it's good to have those sort of um, mentors as well. And as if I would consider him, I guess I would consider him a mentor, not in the sense that I know him on a personal level, but I think he is a he's a mentor in the sense that you know he's someone who you could aspire towards and has obviously been extremely successful and approaches things in quite a unique way. So I, I, I'm impressed by him in that respect. And I think what his story highlights is that, you know, if you want to achieve truly significant wealth, you know, it's not really about hard work. Um, his other book is The 80-20 Rule, and, and you can take a look at that. Um, basically, it's that 80% of output is generated by 20% of your effort. Um, and so as an example, you could work really hard at a restaurant, for example, 80 hours a week, but you're not going to get rich, right? Getting rich is about knowing what to do and when to do it. It's, um, it's much more about understanding the world rather than purely hard work. So yes, hard work matters. You can't skimp on it, but it has to be directed in the right way. Uh, and I think what his story also highlights is the best way to financial freedom is to own 
a piece of a business. You know, if you're paid for renting out your time, even lawyers, doctors, management consultants, you can make money for sure, but you're not going to make the money that gets you to financial freedom. You're not going to have that passive income where a business is earning for you while you're on vacation or while you're sleeping. You know, in a traditional job, your income scales linearly. You have to work up to that point where you can own equity in a business. That's the key. Um, so you could own equity as a small shareholder when you buy stock. You could also own equity as an owner if you start a company. But this concept of ownership, it's really, really important. And the way I think about it is that you know, money is how we transfer wealth. Money is social credits. It's the ability to have credits and debits on other people's time. Um, and in a traditional job, you know, society says, you know, uh, thanks for doing your job. We owe you something in the future for the work you did in the past. Here's a little IOU, you know, that, let's call that money. Whereas wealth is what you want. Wealth is assets that earn while you sleep. Wealth is the computer program that's running at night serving customers. Wealth is money in the form of equity in a business. And that is how Richard Koch made it to superstar status. I think it's a fantastic turn of events that, you know, we were talking about Richard Koch on an episode. We happened to come across you. I was just reading the book and you've basically just recited what I've been reading. I like this. Fantastic. And it, yeah, it's a great book. And I'm really impressed with the way he can distill very complex things down into very simple topics, very simple frameworks. Yeah. Okay. So you're investing full time rather than working for someone. So what have you found to be the greatest challenge? And also, is there any particular challenge in staying focused or alternatively, have you become obsessed about it and you can't do anything else but research businesses? And also, is it stressful for you not having the security of a regular paycheck? Mm, I mean, that's a great question, Will. And, but, you know, personally, I'm a big believer that Everyone on this planet is born with you know, a spirit of courage, optimism. You know, as we age, that peels away. You know, it turns into a spirit of fear. But I think one, one of the key differences between the general public and people who are really, really successful is that, as we mentioned earlier, they've had a bit of luck. That, that is definitely part of the equation. They've also worked hard. But most importantly, they've got zero doubt about where they're heading. They maintain that extreme courage and optimism to keep getting better at better at whatever they've chosen as their life pursuit. Um, and so for me, that future is, is full-time private investing. Um, and I'm very grateful that my investing track record over the past seven, eight years has put me in a position where I can now fulfill that goal. Now, but before I explain that a bit further and, and also get to your question around the specific challenge, you know, I think it would be remiss of me to, to skip over the fact that full-time private investing is not for everyone. I, I think I should say that because in reality, only a, a ridiculously small proportion of the population will be in a position where they can do it, um, particularly when they're still fairly young. Obviously that, that percentage likelihood increases as you get older. So first and foremost, to take that path, investing must, you know, and I stress that it must be your passion if you're not thinking about investing for hours every single day, well, it's not your burning passion. Uh, and for me, investing is about satisfying intellectual curiosity. You know, I'm also a competitive person, particularly like say on the tennis court. Uh, and I've got a competitive desire to win on the markets, to be better than my former self. So, you know, when I was working as a management consultant, 
I'd spend at least three hours a day late at night or early in the morning researching stocks on top of a you know, somewhat crazy 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. type of workday. But it's critical to build that track record as a part-time investor before you can turn that into a full-time endeavor. Uh, and obviously that's because you need to build capital to work with, but also you need to build confidence in your unique system. You need to build confidence in your ability to systematically and consistently apply that system to make money in good times and bad times uh, and, and across the span of multiple years. So, I mean, in terms of your specific question, what is the greatest challenge of investing full-time? I mean, I personally think that it's being patient. You know, the first 300, 400, $500,000 worth of profits is the hardest to win. Now, even Charlie Munger said that the first million is a real grind. And when you're a full-time investor, you have a lot of time on your hands. So you need to have that patience to let your money and your wins compound and not be overcome by greed and take on extra risk to push your rate of returns higher and higher. That's really, really important. Everything with regards to investing needs to be spoken about in the context of risk. And so you've got that time in your hands. You, you also need to have patience on occasion to do absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing with your buys, with your sells, you know, if that is the right course of action. Because sometimes stocks go on a multi-year run you know, and there's long periods when nothing happens. Uh, there's these consolidation periods when old shareholders are selling, new investors are buying in. You know, if you are in great companies, a lot of times your biggest risk is boredom. So, I mean, that's, that's how I feel about it. But, you know, in terms of what I think personally is the greatest upside to being a full-time private investor, I think it's the enormous and, and truly wonderful life flexibility so for example, I'm able to study here at Oxford University on the side at the moment alongside investing, which I treat as my core job. I'm also able to lead a not-for-profit company as one of four directors alongside investing. Uh, and giving back to the not-for-profit sector is important to me. And I also mentioned tennis and you know, I love the sport. I hope to be able to continue to play tournaments and build my ranking over the next few years, you know, where I'm targeting say the top 250 players in Australia and I've got a fair way to go as I'm ranked about 430 in Australia at the moment. Just on the topic of um, full-time investing and the different routines that you, you've got, you've got your tennis, you've got the other activities that you're interested in as well, but are you quite strict in your approach to investing in terms of setting up a day for yourself? So you would start at always making sure you're at the desk, doing research from 9am in the morning, making sure that you doing certain um, activities or research activities throughout the day? Um, how, how regular is your routine? That's a, that's a good question as well, Ben. I, I mean, I could talk about this for quite some time. I do, I will say yes and no in terms of the rigor of, of my schedule. Um, I think what I, what I do think is important is that you do have some form of rigor and consistency in doing the essentials. And, and for me, as you correctly uh, alluded to, one of the essentials is of course, doing your regular due diligence. So for me, that involves with, you know, waking up at, and the first thing I'll be doing will, will be to check the trades that I've made. And for at the moment with, with the ASX, me being in Oxford, it's overnight, right? So the market's open overnight in Australia. I wake up, I see whether my orders that I've set have executed or not. 
Sometimes I'm staying up a little bit later at night to, to execute them, but I will be managing that. I will put that through a spreadsheet where I'm tracking basically the, every decision I'm making. And I will also be uh, checking all of the announcements. I want to get up to speed very quickly with the, the company specific factors that are influencing the stocks I hold. Um, and of course the, the macro environment. So those things I would absolutely consider the essentials. And I do that with routine, with rigor. Um, however, the reason I say yes and no to that question is the other benefit of, of being a full-time private investor is it does give you that flexibility to the point where you can choose when and where you want to be doing your, your work and your research. And for me, you know, I take that 80-20 principle to heart from Richard Koch, and I believe you should work when you're most productive. You, know, you, should, you should build your day around your most productive hours. You should give yourself time to, to be, um, have a flexible life and to do other things and have variety. And in the working world, you know, if you become tired and exhausted and you really feel like you need a break, you can't really take that break because you're, you're under watch, right? And you've got, to, you've got to hit a certain deadline. Whereas in the investing world, you're playing to fairly long timeframes. Uh, and with your own personal research, when you're considering new stocks, when you're evaluating your current stocks, you can do that at the time that suits you. So you've got to optimize, I think, your performance around your peak hours of the day. Uh, and for me, as I mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily about volume of hours, but it's, it is about consistently putting in some very productive hours. I like how what you're saying refers to some of the topics of other episodes. For example, the optimism that you talked about reminds me of actually an unpublished episode because we're waiting for Ross Bentley, a, a race car instructor, to give sign-off for the editing that I've done. But he talked about Mindset, which is a book by a Stanford psychology researcher. And she talks about there's basically two, two mindsets you can have. One of them is the growth mindset. And he said that that's important for race car drivers. And I think, you know, you're saying that it's also important and it stands to reason for investors. You need to basically have the feeling that your effort and the efforts of the business you're investing in is going to result in growth. That's obviously the target of Richard Koch as well, identifying star businesses. So I think that was a nice uh, cross-reference, if you like. Oh, I was just saying, I really like the growth mindset. I agree that that is something that everyone should uh, yeah, consider with regards to how they're, they're framing their own decisions and, and approaching their life, right? Because I think that's yeah, everyone, no matter what they're doing, you should be aiming to be a continual better version, continue to be evolving, right? So Another thing that you reminded me of was during the episode with the A330 instructor, I think that was episode three, basically what I realized is that what we're doing here with this podcast really is we're talking about self-mastery. As much as we are unashamedly using our knowledge of psychology, and I think um, more and more we need to think about biology to identify gaps in the market and, and things that we can arbitrage, essentially errors in the estimates of the future free cash flows of a business that emotional overrides cause us to make. Also, what we can do through this little experiment and this exploration, this journey we go on with each guest is to learn how to gain the self-mastery necessary not to be that person in the small cap space making those behavioral errors. Not to flatter you, Tom, but merely to recognize that you are demonstrating some elements of self-mastery which can be useful and which this podcast is also about. Thanks, Will. Yeah, I think 
I've got a long way to go on this journey. That's certainly what I would say. Very early stages of it. Um, but yeah, something I'm working towards. Sure. Okay. Well, we've got a final question and it's a nice technical one. So finally, do you have any thoughts on the latest severe value factor drawdown? We're talking the worst in 200 years, according to Mikhail Semenov. The latest update was a 64% drawdown, according to a Financial Times article. And the fact that some are considering changing accounting methods for internally developed intangible assets to try to still participate in the market whilst still labeling themselves as value investors. Yeah, you know, I think there's, there's definitely no doubt that value has underperformed growth or momentum styles in, in recent times. And that's been you know, particularly evident with the outperformance in recent years of the, the US mega cap tech stocks. And so, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, there's a number of financial analysts and academics are looking at that distortion of earnings and book value relative to you know, the change in the way that intangible investments are treated from an accounting perspective. Um, and so you know, when you, if you wind back the clock and you look at how, when that sort of rules and those regulations came into play at the time, and I think you discussed it on the last episode, you know, tangible assets were much greater than intangible ones with across the set of the, the universe of companies. And so the reasoning of course, at the time was that, you know, expensing, was appropriate because there's normally that high degree of uncertainty about the future benefits of research and development projects. Uh, of course, you know, the key challenge is it's, it's shifting, that mix of investments shifting. Today, it's intangible, more so than tangible, particularly with the rise of, uh, of tech companies. And of course, that means the recording of investments has migrated from, you know, the balance sheet to the income statement. So the investor's jobs has not changed. The investor's job is the same the analytical approach has changed. So, I mean, personally, I think that analysts are catching up with that process, you know, starting to appropriately recognize where value does sit despite those accounting discrepancies, perhaps being inadequate. You look at, say, analysts for stocks such as Facebook, Amazon, they're probably starting to bend the accounting rules a little bit, so to speak, to investigate what the, you know, effective profits the company's making is when considering the, the expense of intangible assets. But I think, the reason that's it's so important, and it's yeah, glad you did mention it because I don't think many podcasts or even um, analysts are talking about this, is that this this winner takes all environment in the current world with highly scalable business models, particularly software as a service. Now they don't capitalize their their uh, their spending, and it's it's very valuable, but it's spending on brand, IT, human resources, R and D. And of course, that skews their book values downward compared to the share price. So they appear expensive on price to book um, compared to, you know, the cheaper, low growth, old economy firms. Right? To, to, to butt in here. So one of, one of your investments was Redbubble. Redbubble is a sort of an information age business, if you like. I'd say there's a, a fair amount of intangible investments and assets in that business. Do you have any comments specific to Redbubble in this context or on this topic? Yeah, so just briefly as context, so about two weeks ago, probably I took a position in Redbubble at an average enterprise of about $4.20 per share. It's actually the largest holding in, in my portfolio at the moment. It's got about 24% weighting. So very sizable holding, high conviction. I feel that there's a strong margin of safety there from a valuation perspective. Uh, and for, for those that don't know, you know, it's a global online marketplace uh, for, say, T-shirts, face masks, tea towels, et cetera. 
for print-on-demand products based on user-submitted artwork. So their goal is, you know, basically to empower independent artists by creating that the, what they hope will be the world's largest marketplace uh, for independent talent. So to, to get a feel for the numbers, you know, the share price is about $5 at the moment. There's about 271 million shares on issue. That corresponds to a market cap of about 1.35 billion Aussie dollars. And what I think is important here from, from a valuation perspective is, sure, you can look at, you could forecast out into the future where their profit will get to. But I think from, and, and they're, they're increasingly more and more uh, efficient as they scale because they've got that operational leverage. But I think, you know, valuation has almost changed to some extent in the tech sector, in the SaaS space. And really, it's all about multiples of revenue now because of what we were talking about there and the fact that you know, in every tech company is just simply reinvesting and growing the top line. They're often unprofitable. Their assets are often intangible. Uh, and so valuing them on a multiple of revenue is probably a little bit more fair at this stage. So they're very cheap, you know, even on those valuation metrics. They're growing extremely fast. I could talk in depth about the, the business, but we're probably a bit bit out of time. But I think there's one other yeah. factor, Will, that I'd mention, which is around this um, this concept and why value is underperformed. And you know, I think it's the fact that if you also look at one of the other aspects, it's that we have very very low rates, obviously, at the moment, right? And so the value of an asset or a business, of course, is dependent on that discount rate. And those those are very very low levels have led to a situation in which I guess investors are seeking stocks with potentially large, but less certain and more distant profits at the expense of firms with those historically proven business models. Now, if, if I was to conclude, what I'd say is, I think ultimately value, and I, I am a value investor, so I'm biased, but I think it's reasonable to expect that growth stocks with future expectations that are extre extreme, uh, that don't materialize will suffer sharp price reversals. And so I think, you know, the next decade is going to be fascinating. I don't agree with commentators who state we're seeing the death of value investing. You know, my, my fundamental belief is that it's, it's guided that intrinsic cash generated value of companies over the long term is the most important factor. You know, that is the gravity. You can resist it for a while, but it always brings you back down to earth. So I think the time of value investing is coming. Just like in Lord of the Rings, we will see the return of the king. All right, thanks for your time, Tom. So if people want to find you and follow your articles, how can they find you? Yeah, so you could get in touch through my website. So that is www.tepinvestments.com. I'm also, yeah, on Hot Copper under t.e.p. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, and you'll also find TP Investments on LinkedIn. And I'm sharing perhaps a monthly uh, newsletter update on the portfolio and and updates on stocks that I find interesting as well. So you might like to sign up to that newsletter. Great. Okay. Check the show notes for those links.